This is Angela Sylvain, author of Chopping Spree, a rewind or die novella. And you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the James Bond and Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on the horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Stajak, a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. And we're excited. It's August. We are kicking off our month by focusing on Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow by turning to Hippocampus Press' recently released Under Twin Suns, Alternate Histories of the Yellow Sign, edited by James Chambers. No relation. And apparently no relations, as of yet. We selected two short stories from the collection, and they are Carol Geisander's The Yellow Crown and Megan Akuri's Found and Lost. To provide content or context for these stories, let's start with a brief overview of James Chambers' Under Twin Suns collection that includes the two short stories we'll be discussing today. Under Twin Suns is an anthology released in the early summer of 2021 spearheaded by James Chambers, author of such books as On the Night Border and The Engines of Sacrifice. The anthology is composed of poems and short stories from 23 authors and includes the likes of Linda D. Addison, Karen Warren, Sarah Reed, John Langan, and many others. The stories are all specifically influenced from The Repairer Reputations and The Yellow Sign, all from Robert W. Chambers's seminal and influential book, The King in Yellow. The anthology was published by Hippocampus Press, the leading publisher of Lovecraft scholarship in weird fiction texts. And now for the plot of The Yellow Crown. Betty is a down-on-her-luck young adult in the market for a new job. She spent her entire life uneducated, helping her single mother out, working odd jobs. But now she's on her own. At the suggesting of her neighbor, she applies for a position at a house of ill repute. She is greeted by Evelyn, who takes a liking to young Betty and decides to hire her. Touring the house of the madam, Betty becomes more and more enamored with the girl she sees and the decor inside. She eventually meets the madam, who is Constance from the Repairer of Reputations, and immediately falls under her spell. As Betty can't read, and the job requires a reading of The King in Yellow, the madam arranges to have Betty be a part of one of the night's uh, guests' excursions. As the madam reads out loud the king in yellow to the guest, whose name's Mr. Morgan, so too does Betty hear the words. It is revealed that the king in yellow is no more. It is now the queen in yellow, with Constance occupying that position, and Betty completely subservient to her cause. So, Michelle, thoughts on the yellow crown? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Carol's story. Um, I'm, I'm very much interested in the 1920s. So it really kind of hit my interest button. Well, you've done a lot of work on like silent film studies and modernity of the era. I have. So uh, this just made it, uh, you know, a treat for me. 
I always like when an author uses a kind of well-known original text and then are able to draw their own story. So I really commend both Carol and Megan, who will talk in the next section. Uh, I like those kind of stories. So this really resonated for me. I, you know, we've interacted with Carol. So to me, I really feel like the story that Carol, Carol written had written uh, is very much in keeping with her personality <laughs> as far as I I understand her. Her personality um, seeps through the text. It really does. And um, I think that's part of the treat of the of the this story is just the fact that we know Carol, we've interacted with Carol. So there there's Carol stamped on this story <laughs> and um, I really like that. What about you? Well, the story begins with a lady adjusting the seams on her stockings. So oh, well, you love it. <laughs> so immediately, A+, plus, 100% five-star Amazon review, right there. Um, but, but I, 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 you know, I say that as, yeah, huh. but, but like what you're saying, though, it is setting. Um, what Carol has done is she's managed to take uh, Chambers' vision of the 20s as it was written in 1895 and kind of, I don't want to say course-corrected per se, but reconcile it to the real-life 1920s and 30s. So there is that gin and jazz element to it. So even though the story takes place more or less in one setting, it's it's in the madam's house. You don't see too much of the world outside of it, but enough still seeps in. You you have, you know, uh, Chambers's lines of, you know, the here's the, the dragoons doing their maneuvers and stuff. Like, well, that's not right. You don't have that stuff in the 20s. But on the other hand, you have the house filled with you know, flapper ladies, and um, for all purposes, they're dressed as if it was a Prohibition era, but there isn't a Prohibition going on in this uh, history. So it's like you kind of got the Prohibition era without the Prohibition, all the <laughs> the benefits without any of the negatives. is kind of, I mean, yeah, here's this house of ill repute. She's like, I, you know, I know it's a house of ill repute, but at the same time, you know, no one is is scarlet lettering it you know it's actually part of it's, this isn't an underground speakeasy type establishment it's there and so i like that i i like that it's a reconciliation of this alternate uh an alternate future with a historic past and i think she pulls it off very well it has the best of both worlds and i like it yeah i would ask that that she carol also includes a a, a wonderful undercurrent of Things that are to come, you know, nods to the Great Depression or whether it's nods to other activities related to the yellow sign. Uh, we don't exactly know, but we know that there's that kind of undercurrent. There's there's an economic instability that's going on in this story. And I mean, we get that with um, a bit with the original text, too. So it's it's a nice blending well, of worlds. Well, we're going to talk about the economic stuff in a bit because that's probably the major theme on this. But I recall in our original discussions with King and Yellow, you brought up a lot of anxieties as this was related to invasion literature, which yes. is what Chambers' story was. And again, I'm I'm going back to the foggy recesses of the noggin here that the Yellow Sign book king and yellow book came about through invasion literature so it had those anxieties this mm -hmm. story has great po pre great depression anxieties i'm guessing yeah so it's actually interesting that both these stories take uh 
seek out that economic unrest. But you are correct. Uh, the fact that Robert uh, W. Chambers' stories from 1895, which is at the height of the invasion literature, particularly uh, in the UK, there was a lot of anxieties. You have the rise of the nation states, um, and you have the the unrest of Europe as you know they're vying for land and resources and things like that. And hence the anti-immigrant stance that you got mm -hmm. in the original text. That and we'll get to that. And that not so much in Carol's story, but definitely in Megan's story. Yes. The the other thing. Uh, again, uh, what I like about this is kind of uh, the story is I'm an avid gamer. <laughs> There is this uh, a company over in Europe called Frogware, and they make all these Sherlock Holmes games. And they aren't the greatest games. They're about a generation or two behind on graphics and AI and stuff. But regardless, you know, you play a Sherlock Holmes, you're going through Whitechapel trying to catch the Jack the Ripper killer in one of them. And for some odd reason, the setting in this kind of makes me think of that kind of late Victorian... And again, that's probably because the original... Uh, chambers, you know, late 1890s, it just kind of seeps through. Just her outside the house, going into the alley, going in, just made me kind of nostalgic for playing those old uh, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes adventure games. Just in setting, just in a visualization of the architecture, kind of a, a, a little seedy underhandedness in a very, you know, here's New York City, a very populated uh, city uh, state that's, you know... um probably intimidating and has its own secrets as well so it made me nostalgic for that yeah and going on that i think and one of the appeals also with the sherlock holmes is that we've got a real trend towards uh the sherlock holmes stories we've got the uh, benedict uh, cumberbatch uh <laughs> series we've got the johnny lee miller series actually i don't know if that called elementary i don't know if that's on any longer because uh, we don't watch television but you know you have those two shows but you also have downton abbey uh which gets into that kind of that's getting to the pre-war and 1920s era because i think it covers you know 20 or 30 years in there but what's interesting is that you know you you're starting to uh, shift off the Victorian values, but there's still quite a bit in this story. And like Downton Abbey, which kind of peels back, kind of, you know, takes away the mask of the illusion of the hierarchy and things like that, we get that in this story too, which I think works very well. Yeah, you have a soft spot for that kind of Jane Austen, high class manners uh, type. I haven't read that stuff. I haven't even read the zombie <laughs> version of that stuff. But I have a feeling because I'm not so much into that, but I'm more into the to the gin and jazz twenties and thirties type stuff. But there is that dapperness by this that I would get from like an Oscar Wilde story. I could. I'm slamming my hand down. I could totally see importance of being earnest where someone's off bunburying to pay a visit to the madam here. Yes. <laughs> I would also say there's an attraction to this because it's a more innocent time. I really love the concept of etiquette um, that just does not exist today. And James Chamber actually talks about um, this anthology and the idea of the mask and in the pandemic and there is something about this story um and i think part of it is the etiquette it's the the 
innocence, the naiveness, perhaps. But there's something about this time that it it calls to me. <laughs> um, and I think part of it is the fact that there there was something about manners. And, you know, even though there's undercurrents of a lot of things going on in the story, there there is something about that time period that is that recommends and and boy, we sure could use a little bit of that <laughs> etiquette today. I'm just going to say that. So, themes of the story, um, and there's quite a few. And and I think Betty, our our plucky protagonist here, is a nice vessel to explore a couple of these anxieties and other things. Speaking of manners, you know, she, she's always curtsying. She's dressed to the best of her nines. This is back, you know, when you wore dresses to a lot of stuff. You know, there's probably whalebone and everything. <clears throat> well, she's also a hostess, mm -hmm. so... Um, and in her previous experience, I mean, she understands customer service um, industry. And so, you know, being those polite, and the, it's all part of being a hostess and working with people. It, and again, so this is a little side note here, because as you said, in the forward to Under Twin Sons, when James Chambers started this book, it was before the pandemic. And he actually makes overt, you know, the changing of, you know, the metaphor. In the original King in Yellow, there's that passage of, you know, take off your mask. Oh, I'm not wearing a mask. <gasps> no mask! You know, and how that takes on a new meaning uh, during COVID times. Uh, you know, folks like us who are vaccinated are wearing our masks. A lot of people are not. Um, very, uh, <laughs> what's that Edgar Allan Poe short story where all the rich folk go and... <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, the other thing that's been happening the past year, like you're saying, she, she's customer service. She is a, a hostess. She's got to put on her best face. Well, what's been the dialogue the past year is the the concept of the, the, the necessary worker, the essential worker. The essential who, worker. The yep. essential worker who runs the McDonald's, the subways, the gas stations, and they're essential to keep everything going. But of course... We don't want to pay them, essentially, obviously, because we're a crazy capitalistic society here. You're so essential, but we we, we mean that panderingly. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, talk about teachers, the mm -hmm. nurses, you know, the, the people that deliver our packages mm -hmm. because we don't want to go to the grocery store, you know, to mm -hmm. department stores to buy things anymore. Um, yeah, there's a whole Ugh. bunch of essential workers, and they do not get compensated well enough but the madam well evelyn i should say first before the madam you know recognizes that you should be paid what you're worth and we don't know how much betty's gonna get paid she, it's written on a piece of paper and betty looks at it and she goes you know wow that's my wages for a month thinking you know wow and evelyn's like no that's your wages for a week i I'm, wish i could experience that <laughs> you too <laughs> there's a lot of instances of optim this is where the story is. It's both dark and innocent at the same time. There's and optimistic. An opti it's like it's you were going for. It's weird that it's both optimistic, but there's an under because by by being a king and yellow story, there is an underbelly to it. Just intrinsically, there's a, a underbelly to it. Although as we come to find out, you know, the queen in yellow sounds like she's going to try to write that course. Maybe um, I don't. I I. I 
people get corrupted so easily. When we talked on our last podcast of The Keep, you know, how easily uh, Ian McKellen's character was corrupted mm-hmm. with the best intentions that could possibly happen here. But I was going, I was on a tangent of this, and all of a sudden it fractured into three branches. But it goes back to, you know, Betty's getting paid her worth. Um, and I, I, I am so sorry. I should have written that down as I was going. But. But contrast that to the real world where that's not going on. But it's nice that she's in this house where she is recognized in this uh, uh, for for the value she brings. So is it is it worth signing up for the yellow sign if if you finally get you know acknowledged for your value? Well, I well so that so I think that's theme number one here. There's two themes. Uh, the second theme is economics, which we touched on briefly. We'll get into in a minute. But the first one is that sense of belonging, and and that's the question is is you know to be let's be honest to be part of the cool kids club to work under the madam and Betty wants to work under this madam and it sounds like the starts off primarily the pay is the reason obviously but you know as she takes the tour of the house and you know. We as the outsiders, we we know there's kind of some strange things afoot when the the two girls are kind of singing, you know, bits of the play to each other at the piano. We've seen that in, you know, the Chambers original. You know, people are going to go insane if they read The King in Yellow. They're going to see things. It's going to be crazy. But regardless of that, you know, that's that's the Kool-Aid you have to drink to be part of the Madam's King in Yellow. And... And again, maybe it's going to be a better king in yellow than other people have brought. But Betty needs a sense of belonging. Uh, just like some people join cults. Some people join the Republican Party. <laughs> um, you, you need a, a sense of belonging. And Betty, from what we know of, of her past, is her 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 mom uh, is dead. or she, oh, No, no. Her dad is out of the picture because I think he died. She's got a single mom that's working her butt off. She's got to help. She's basically Charlie from Char- and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, she probably doesn't have a lot of friends. Her only social circles is the essential working position that she occupies. So, you know, here's a spot for her that there's an empty spot catered just to her. She could be part of something bigger uh, than she is. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking that, you know, this is... An interesting story because it it there's it has a sense of optimism that we're missing, not just in reading all these different stories that tend to go off into destruction and death and craziness and you know uh, multi universes and alternate universes and things like that. But I can understand Betty because we've spent the last year and a half sequestered in our homes for the most part and not being able to interact because we are social people um so there is kind of a sense of optimism about this story we want to believe that the madam is going to do well and that betty finally found a place to call home there's there's definitely an emotional resonance in this story that you don't find in other like weird fiction texts Mm -hmm. we've We've read a lot of Lovecraftian derivative works here, folks. That's kind of the purpose of the podcast. And there is, that's the, probably the one thing we don't see a lot of is an emotional resonance. We see a lot of Ooga Booga, you know, I can't comprehend the universe. <laughs> I'm going to go crazy. And uh, I saw a cat. 
We like the cat stuff, by the way. Yeah. We don't see a lot of emotional resonance. And I, this story has an emotional resonance, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and again, it's it, it it's up in the air of how truthful that emotional resonance is. Because, again, by just by sheer being a king in yellow book, there's always that under, you know, the blanket, under the, you know, the darkness of night, whatever you want to call it, something is still lurking there. And that's probably the only bit of pessimism here is that, you know, maybe the queen in yellow is not quite on the up and up. But I'm going to take the position like you. I'm going to be the optimist in this story that she is on the up and up. She she did what the the character and the repair reputations couldn't do, and that's what she says, that she recognizes what what is the possibility uh, the power of the king in yellow. Now, of course, again, how many stories have we seen many times? Lord of the Rings. Well, if you give me the one ring, <laughs> I'm going to do things correctly here. So we know what's going on. Poor Sean Bean. <laughs> Poor Sean Bean. That the madam is potentially could be a Sean Bean. She could be. The other thing here is definitely economics. Um, as as hinted, this story sounds like it's going to occur at the cusp of the Great Depression. I know the Great Depression occurred a little bit earlier in real life, but probably because if we're getting into weird time stream, alternate universe, whatever type stuff, you know, we're again, we're writing in the Chambers' universe, and Carol's trying to bring it a little bit back to what really happened. So that's my take is the Great Depression's probably a little delayed. Because there's some dialogue. Hey, how's the stocks going? They're going a little down. Um, well, you know the crash was in 1929. And I, I got yeah. the sense that this story was a little bit earlier than 29. So probably like mid-20s. See, that, that's what's a little... We know that this story is a direct sequel to um, Repair Reputations, and it's taking place a couple years after. I kind of put it in the 30s a little bit, but yeah, it's 20s at, you know. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely the Great Depression. Carol will correct us if we're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) She's listening right now, like, this story exactly takes place on, you know, February 31st, 1927. (laughs) (laughs) The temperature is, you know, it's, it's that, uh, that scene at the beginning of, uh, Return to Living Dead, you know, uh, 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, whatever. Um, but, but you know, the, in real life here, this pandemic stuff, uh, student loan crisis, ha- and housing going up, uh, no one going out for jobs because, you know, no one wants to pay anyone. We know in real life something is on the horizon here, and we're getting that sense of foreboding now we know that betty's going to be taken care of you know uh my guess which we're glad about because you know what we haven't i don't think we've been overt about is that betty is a really likable character carol does in 15 pages she really brings you into this character she drops wonderful character personality traits about betty that we like and you know we care about this character i like her fashion sense Okay, <laughs> but we know she's going to get taken care of. We know that the madam is wheeling and dealing with other aristocrats, getting their monies and stuff down. She sees that this Great Depression's coming. Now, here's the weird thing: Betty has no skill. She has a skill set. She does. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you know, it's a service industry and everything. But you know, she can't do the one critical thing that needs to be required of this job. She can't read. Well, she can read, but it 
she said that it would take her a very long time yeah. to read the book, and you know she's <clears throat> she's she can read, but she's not yeah. a strong reader. So the idea comes down to, and this is this is where it's the bittersweet real life here. You know, how did Betty get this job when there's probably, and again, I don't mean to sound sinister here. I'm just equating it to what's real life here. There is probably hundreds of other young ladies in Betty's position that might have been even more better suited for this job. I, I'm glad that Betty got it. How did Betty get this job? Her, it's who you know. <laughs> it's who you know. And and, and, and that, that's the weird thing. We could, you know, like, oh, you know, Betty got this job. She's so happy and all that stuff. But just like in real life, you can have all the degrees and all the skill sets, mm -hmm. uh, or you can have none of it. It's not what you know. It's who you know, and in this, in and just it's kind of the slap back to our real life here. Betty was able to get through this job because of her neighbor. Um, yep. My neighbor suggested I come here. Oh, you know, we know about you from your neighbor. They seriously, the interview when Betty's brought into Evelyn's office is seriously like two questions of tell me about your past and can you start now, basically. They had already basically decided on Betty, and I can only assume it's probably through the good word of her neighbor, which is, we don't know who this neighbor is, but I'm guessing this neighbor's probably been a part of Betty's life. She She's seen Betty be a hard worker as the coat check girl and the waitress and all that stuff. And so, mm -hmm. and and again, a lot of Upwards mobility in real life is restricted by that not what you know and who you know. And as down on her luck as Betty is, she has that ace in the hole that got her this job. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so so uh so it's that's kind of the little bit bittersweet here. Um uh, it's not. It's not a knock against the story or anything. It's just that it's a knock against life. It's lock. It's a knock <laughs> against life. Dang it! <laughs> but but it this it, it goes to show the that just as James Chambers and his forward, you know, talk about the pandemic and the idea of the mask and stuff. Here's Carol's story that's taken a more, I would say. Not a pandemic look at things. And again, I, I think some of these stories were written during the pandemic. Some of them probably were written right before it. And maybe just through happenstance that th there's a currency in Carol's story that really resonates with the people at the lower uh, social economic ladder. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a... And I think she handles it with, you know, a lot of grace, a lot of emotiveness, and of course, in that very weird fiction sort of way that we all know and love. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I, I feel like it's a snapshot of what we're kind of living in today and have been living in for the last year, year and a half. And of course, you know, you might even say even longer than that as the machinations of life outside of our control of... Uh, things has happened anyway time to take a break i think it is so we're going to take a quick musical intermission before moving on to our second story found and lost by megan akuri we hope you join us in just a moment
All right, welcome back. Let's talk about Found and Lost. So here's a plot of the story. Joseph is a disgruntled employee working for the armorer, Mr. Hallberg. Joseph slaves day after day in the back room, polishing and dusting every hip plate or being sent on errands to get this or that. One particular day, his boss, Hallberg's daughter Constance, and Lewis gather in the front room of the shop, heads close together as Hallberg shows a secret treasured item. Through happenstance, Joseph spies the precious item, a piece of black onyx with a strange and with a gold symbol. The lowly worker feels drawn to the jewel. Later, as he finishes up for the day, he realizes that the jewel is now in his pocket. He doesn't know how it arrived in his pocket, but Joseph doesn't waste a moment to cash in on Fortune's smile. But was that smile more akin to a wolf in sheep's clothing? Max, who will fence anything, legal or otherwise, wants nothing to do with the jewel or Joseph. Joseph was adrift after the encounter. The next morning, he woke to the fist, to fist banging on his room's door. It was Lewis and Mr. Halberg. Joseph opens the door and the visiting men do a good cop, bad cop approach <laughs> to getting the stone back. Well, Joseph was not too quick to admit that he had the stone until looking into Lewis's eyes and he became spellbound. He felt quite instantly compelled to return the jewel. But what was this? Could you believe old Joseph's luck? He discovered he had a hole in his pocket and realized that the jewel had made his escape. He was given the day to retrace his steps to find the treasure or face remaking himself and trying again. Poor Joseph did not find the stone. With a heavy hand on his shoulder, Lewis turned Joseph to face the lethal chamber. <laughs> Nicholas, what do you think of this story? Uh, can I just comment on what I think of your reading? <laughs> Joseph is a disgruntled employee. And as soon as he said that, my thoughts were, well, well no, duh. And then, and, then, and again, we, we freshly read this. They're doing the good cop, bad cop routine. I'm like, of course they are. And it, it didn't dawn on me because, you know, I'm just kind of caught up in it. And I'm like, they, they are, they're totally doing good cop, bad cop. <laughs> That, that this adds a little bit to the humor of the story, of which, with which the story there's a little there's a sly sense of humor to this. Um, so my thoughts on the story, there, there's a lot of thematic overlap with the story, as with Carol's. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But li like uh, Betty, um, Joseph is a down on his luck type guy. But um, the setting that he's in, it feels steampunkish. Well, and what I mean by that is. Carol was trying to integrate Chambers' future into our past, the, again, the Roaring Twenties. Um, Megan was compelled to leave it flat out in James, uh, not James. <laughs> we're we're going to there, get... There's, there's no relation. Just there's, remember. There's no relation. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it the original Chambers' uh, world there. And, you know, him being in the armory... Um, it just feels very steampunky because, you know, there's armor, there's chain mail. Even though this isn't a steampunk story, I feel like it's almost steampunk adjacent to this lens. And I think of 
much like I was thinking of the old Sherlock Holmes games with carols, I think of kind of like a JRPG with Megan's story of here's the town, I'm gonna, here's the armorer, here's the, the fencer, you know, I'm gonna walk into all the shops, talk to all the people. There's kind of a steampunkish fantasy element to it. Here's a, a gem that came off an armor, it's kind of magical, and I kind of like that uh, approach as well. It's, it's vastly different than Carol's. It's, it's keeping with the original repair reputations and the yellow sign, uh, which I'll bring that up here in a second because that's the other thing I like about this, but it also is its own thing as well. Yeah, you know, when you were talking about the steampunk, I realized that uh, the yellow crown was a very soft story in a way. In the field, the way there was a... a this sense of comfort, um, you know, that kind of subtly sucked you in. And yet with uh, Found and Lost, it's definitely a harder... Industrial. In industrial feel to it, which um, I hadn't picked up on until you were just making your comments. This is definitely... They're two, two sides of the same working class coin. Betty is the... Uh, you know, like you said, the customer service call cigarette girl, if you will, working class. Joseph is the immigrant working class uh, here. Um, the other thing I want to say I do like about the story is it makes me think of the Star Wars expanded universe where, you know, uh, you'd have... The, the books? The books. Okay. The, the comics and the books of, like, the 90s. Because what you'd have is you'd have some editor... And they would, like, look at, like, the Moss Eisley Katina scene and say, I bet we can make a book with every one of those aliens having their own story. And, and they did. You know, that's what a lot of the Star Wars books what did was they would use, like, the three films at the time as a launching off point to tell other stories or fill in gaps and stuff. And that's kind of what Megan is doing in this story. This, this story takes place concurrently with the repair reputations and it directly links up to the yellow sign. She's just filling in the gaps of how does how do you get from the original King in Yellow from one story to the other? And she's trying to link those with this brand new character of Joseph. And I kind of like that. It adds a little bit of extra intertextuality to it. Um, it does create a sense of ambiguity. Ambiguity. A sense of mysteriousness. <laughs> At the end of the story, which we'll talk about, because the ending is a little bit of, huh? What? So pin that for a moment, pin because we're not quite there. Yeah. Um, like you, I, you know, as I said with Carol's story, I like stories that are able to take source material and then make it their own. And just like Carol, I think that Megan did a wonderful job doing that. Not only, you know... She also trying to weave it into the original source material, um, which is not always an easy thing to do. But there, there's definitely room uh, to weave in Joseph and give us just a little bit more insight into Mr. Uh, Hauberk and also Lewis. Uh, in the original material, um, Lewis reads the yellow sign, but he seems to be unaffected by it. And yet in this story... Lewis is a, a bigger character in this story who is actually the king. 
Um, which is interesting because in the original text, I got this sense uh, in my reading that Lewis just kind of shined on uh, his cousin and didn't really believe him. So this is kind of, this is another layer of a different, a kind of an alternate reading of the original text. Well, I think with the original text, it's pretty overt of you don't know who to believe here because the entire mm -hmm. story's per, uh, point of view from, what's his name, Hild Hildegard? Hilde Hildred. Hild Mr. H. <laughs> It is is dubious because he's been knocked on the head and he's read The King in Yellow. So everything he sees is suspect, you know. Um, you know, I, I think I read somewhere that the, the lethal chambers aren't even supposed to be lethal chambers. They're supposed to be subway entrances. You know, people go in and they pop out elsewhere. And I think um, the, James Chambers, you know, in his uh, On the Night Border story said, nah, we're going to make those real suicide chambers here or something. So... Yeah, this story definitely keeps with that unreliable narrator because, and again, it, it's we have, it's being based on what what <laughs> dubious fragments we know from the original is now even kind of more dubious in this one because again, our narrator in this Joseph, he's he's a liar, <laughs> he's not a very nice guy, but he also gets corrupted by not he doesn't read the King in Yellow. No. But but the the powers that be of the king in yellow is still enough to, I mean you know he has blinks in memory he doesn't understand like I don't remember stealing this you know so uh, it still it just adds to that mysteriousness of what is real and what is not real from the original text is carried over to here and then you know Megan is trying to. I don't. I don't think she's trying to make it clearer. She's just trying to branch two stories together. But in the process, it does spin that web of, huh? <laughs> well, and and who is reliable? Yeah. Because it becomes even more fragmented. And and we know, you know, uh, Robert W. Chambers was influential on Lovecraft, and Lovecraft made a point of, you know, creating unreliable characters. So Megan has definitely captured the spirit of that unreliable <laughs> uh, narrator. So we don't really quite know who to believe, and um, that's nicely done in this story. So let's talk a little bit about Joseph here, because he is leagues. He's the he, same boat as Betty, but leagues different. Um, Joseph, he's not a nice guy. He steals. He, he fantasizes about... Constance. Mm -hmm. he, he might have some rape fantasies about this other guy's gal. Um, when when you're 16 years old and you open up a magazine and there's Sandra Bullock there and you go, oh man, that's so cute. You know, you're discovering, you know, that type of Your stuff. Your sexuality. Yeah. Uh -huh. when, when you're an older man and you do that to other people, that's creepy and bad. <laughs> okay. So, but at the same time though, even though it's creepy and bad, you can't help but relate to him because, again, through him, this, this again, this gets into the dubiousness here. From his perspective, he is a poorly treated worker. He's in the back. He's doing all this manual labor, not it, getting recognized, not for getting it recognized for it. It's hard work, and and just let's just be honest. Just like you and I in real life, when we're at work, man those other people they don't know what they're doing oh you know we, we totally sympathize with that but also on the other hand 
a unreliable narrator here, it's entirely possible that maybe he is being compensated correctly. Maybe he is getting recognition and whatnot, but he's just a jerk about it. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with him. I think in this story. That's side note. That's the other thing that these stories do. The characters that are in the original Chambers one, we get different personalities come through in these ones, and so it's mm -hmm. kind of like. What's the correct personality here? The canical one in the original are where, you know, Megan and Carol and other folks who have written under Twin Sons takes them. I'm I'm inclined to believe Joseph here, even though he's a liar and dubious and whatnot, that he's a crappily treated employee, which again goes with the themes and motifs of the economic woes that we're going on right now. Our essential workers don't want to return back to work. They're not being paid well. They're not getting recognized well. Um, so why should they? I sympathize. I, 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 do. I think it's all workers. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. particularly with the essential workers who have, have remained on the front line and, mm -hmm. and are not recognized mm -hmm. as well as they mm -hmm. should be. Now, now, while this story does have its economic themes like um, Carol's story, I think there's another theme here going on. And I'm going to call it the Clockwork Orange theme. Um, in Clockwork Orange, you have a character, Alex, who's very much like Joseph. He's not a nice guy. <laughs> That's to put it lightly. I'm sorry. Uh -huh. Malcolm McDowell's a little shit in that film. <laughs> <clears throat> but he goes through the Ludvico treatment, and afterwards he comes out a reformed person. He is, to use the words that Megan uses, remade. But, you know, he's incapable of doing violence. He's incapable of doing a lot of stuff because he's been programmed not to. Joseph kind of goes through the same thing. He loses his autonomy that Alex does in Clockwork Orange. In the beginning, Joseph, he has thoughts. Oh, he has opinions, all right. He, he expresses his discomfort. Sen and sense of <clears throat> entitlement. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah. he has agency. It's that question of what makes a man, when I say a man, I mean a, a person. But I think the proverb is what makes a man a man. In this case, what makes a person a person you know, that sense of autonomy, my thoughts are my own. But he loses that as the story goes on. And first, when he encounters the little opal, you know, it, it blinks his memory and, you know, he winds up stealing it. He's kind of under its spell, but you know, he still has thoughts about it. But it isn't until, you know, he's bowing at the feet of Lewis, who he thinks is the king in yellow, or is the king in yellow. There's two ways to go about that. He either truly is the king in yellow or Lewis really thinks he's the king in yellow, doesn't change the perspective, you know, the purpose of it all. Um, at that point, the text radically changes. You no longer see uh, Joseph's thoughts and feelings, his little musings on, you know, you know, F that guy, and I'm entitled to this, and this is my thoughts and that. They all vanish. He really becomes a robot in the last half of the story of retracing his steps and... He's, he's kind of going back to that steampunk thing I said earlier. He's like a bio-automaton, if you think about it. He, like Clockwork Orange, he loses that sense of autonomy. He is completely subservient to the king in yellow, which, of course, translates to, you know, that absolute authority of, like, the monarchy or the aristocracy over the working poor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh you know, Megan in the, the first half really gives you a lot of cues of who Joseph is. And like you said, by the second half, uh, when he realizes he's lost the stone, 
um, and has to retrace his step. The old Joseph would have said, well, F you, dude, go find it yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and there's none of that. It, you know, this is it. This is Joseph part two mm-hmm. uh, in the second part of the book. Um, and there's no sense of entitlement. There's no concerns about upward mobility. He's not even thinking about how, you know, depressed economically he is. The, the, the entire focus is on making sure that he finds the stone. Um, and if he's not able to, hopefully the king will have, you know, mercy on him. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's all we can hope for in life is a little bit of mercy on us. Um, so let's talk about the ending a little bit because the ending is both crystal clear and ambiguous. So Joseph fails. Basically, he is unable to find this opal. He's unable to find it. And so it's very, very important here to establish that Lewis is the king in yellow. Super important. What page is that on? Uh, 149. 149? Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the very last? Not, not the very last. Where, oh. where, where it overtly makes it that Lewis, you know, he, I dropped to my knees and kissed his feet. My king. You know, so right there, it's the tatters of a man, a king, Lewis. So page 145, it is established that, again, Lewis is either the king in yellow or our, our Joseph is full home 100% convinced because of the spell of the opal or whatever is the king in yellow. But for all purposes, through the perspective of the text, Lewis is the king in yellow. That We have to set that in stone for this to work. All right. Joseph fails finding the Set opal. Set it in stone. I'm oh, sorry, that, was good. <laughs> that 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 un- unintentional pun. Um, he fails, and so what's going to happen is Lewis says, "You need to go in the lethal chamber. You are going to be remade." Now, here here's here's a little thing here. So now Joseph goes in the chamber, says, "Quote the melody, the harmonies rose and fell. The foreign words. Have you found it? Have you found it? Have you found it? Have you found it? The king was with me." I'm going to take that literally. Joseph is in the lethal chamber, and Lewis slash the king in yellow is in there. Very much in a two-man enter, one-man leave. I'm going to assume Joseph comes out. And they have a, so and he comes out, he sees, The king and the old man approached me. It doesn't say Lewis and the armor approached him. It says the king and the old man. Are you? So I'm, again, I'm assuming Lewis is the king. Are you ready to find it? The king said. I nodded and bowed to him. When I rose, the old man's eyes bore into me. His mouth curled in disgust. Can we trust the immigrant? His face is already puffy and much paler. He looks like a coffin worm. Now, that's important because in Chambers's other story, The Yellow Sign, the watchman is described as a coffin worm. What's, what the story is setting up is the watchman in that story is... Joseph from this story. He's been Kafkaed. You know, he's he's going through a tra- he's Jeff Goldblum in the fly here. The the lethal chamber is the teleporter. Except he doesn't drool. Except he doesn't drool. Here's where it gets tricky. Not to worry, the king said. He will find it. He will keep watch from over there. Right, Lewis? And then he points to the church, which sets off the yellow sign. Right, Lewis is what's throwing me off. And that's the ambiguous part, because the king is saying that, but he's asking right Lewis. But the king is Lewis. So so that's where I'm a little kind of... 
is was there an error in the text and he should have said joseph or is it really lewis you know they both entered the chamber and what came out is like a combination of lewis and joseph and this grundlefly type thing and the king in yellow is the true king in yellow you know it's not the lewis king in yellow it is the mysterious i don't know and that's where i'm kind of a little thrown i see what the story's doing it's linking repair reputations with the yellow sign the character characters become the watchman in this one it's just that's where i'm a little kind of thrown it's where it's a little ambiguous who is the true king in yellow in this one because to me, up until that point, I was still on board with Lewis being in the King in Yellow, but that one sentence throws it over I, and that's where I kind of, well, as if I read the, the King in Yellow myself, and my own reality has changed, and I don't know what's real and what's not real anymore. Yeah, um, or is it a narrative device to that just further substantiates that Joseph and his new iteration is an unreliable uh, narrator to the story. That's true, too. That's true, too. Um, so it's ambiguous, and which, which, again, I think is keeping with, you know, the ambiguousness of, of the original story and of the original reading of The King in Yellow within the original story. There's a lot of nested texts going on here, <laughs> and, and that doesn't help when every... Isn't it kind of tragic that the least... Uh, unreliable narrators is in uh, Carol's story because I'm on board with everyone in that one. They would not lie to me, <laughs> would they? Everyone lies in this one, though, and everyone lies in the original text. Sh surely the house of ill repute would not lie to me. I don't know. <laughs> I, there's probably some subterfuge somewhere in that, that house. No way. It's not like the madam is putting people under the king and yellow spell to get their money or anything. It's not like Lewis in this one is setting up a crazy army of people trying to find his lost opal and... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to read more stories in Under Twin Suns for sure to see where other folks take these things. It's been very interesting to see all the different angles interpretations making certain things canning canon erasing certain canons and i guess it just shows the powerfulness of the original king in yellow it's influenced not on just lovecraft but on weird fiction and how you his stuff still has currency today and that we could do meaningful successor texts with it and on that note, we're going to take one more musical intermission before moving on to upcoming events. And welcome back. We'd like to thank Angela Sylvain for providing the bumper for this episode's introduction. Angela is the author of the recently published novella, Chopping Spree. We interviewed Angela for our June Transmissions episode, and if you'd like to hear her read a passage from her story, well, we've included a link to that program in the show notes. We wish her continued success. And while we're giving out some thank yous, we'd like to thank again um, Philippe Gerber and Project John 316, 
For the musical intros, outros, and intermissions that you hear uh, in most of our episodes, except for transmissions, we use a little bit weirder music for that one. Um, but he uh, composed Agathoth. Agathoth, <laughs> yes, what he said. <laughs> Uh, for our show, and we are just continuously uh, thank you for um, to him for giving his talent to our show. Um, and with that, we have some upcoming events. Hey, if you really like the show, we are continuing our exploration of Robert W. Chambers' collection by discussing the graphic novel adaptation and illustrated by I.N.J. Colbert's The King in Yellow. It was published by Self-Made Hero in 2015. We hope you will join us and listen to this episode when it posts on Sunday, August 22nd. And of course, on HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, we're going to spotlight two or three writers whose short stories appeared in Under Twin Stones, histories of the yellow sign i'm sorry i'm just so excited about this <laughs> in addition to the interview each guest will delight the listener that's you guys with brief readings from their stories this episode will post on tuesday august 31st i just realized uh <laughs> spoilers in this episode <laughs> yeah uh, um so we're on facebook twitter and instagram our website is hplovecast.com and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com if, you, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we've either edited or contributed to. If you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>